Hello? Yeah, what's up, Tony? Yo, what up, Rye? This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Tonight we have a special guest straight from the army uh, who has delivered a disgusting dinner for us. It's called A Meal Ready to Eat. I'm ready to eat it. So here's what's going on. First of all, these things are hysterical. <laughs> like, how many of these do you... Well, first of all, let us set you up. So we have a special caller today. Right. We've been uh, trying to get this done for a while. Exactly. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Ryan, who... Uh, well, Ryan, actually, why don't you, why don't you kind of tell us uh, who you are and what you've done? Uh, all right. Um, I've been in the Army for uh, about 10 years now. Uh, I spent some time enlisted in 75, 75th Ranger Regiment uh, as an infantryman. And then uh, I, I deployed uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, a little bit to Africa. Um, and then I went into Officer Corps. Uh, I've been working in intelligence. And uh, I, I deployed to Afghanistan. I was actually uh, in Afghanistan at the time of the election uh, in Afghanistan, which was pretty interesting. And uh, it, yeah, that's the, that's the important stuff, really, I guess. Yeah, it's, it sounds pretty important. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. All right. uh, so, a, lot, a so, lot of push-ups in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ryan, real quick, uh, before we get into it, we, uh, you sent us these ready-to-eat meals that I guess you, you had to live off of while you were overseas. And uh, one is, we haven't eaten it yet, but they're on our plates, opened up, ready to rock. How many of these? They're about, what, 20 pounds each. How many of these do you carry? So, uh, so it depends. So usually when you go to the field, uh, the guys that are going to the field, you're usually going to only get, carry 40 hours worth of, uh, food and water with you. If you're lucky, you're hope, you hope you get resupplied every, every two days at the minimum. You'll carry four of those on you plus water, uh, when you're, when you're in the field. And then the same thing goes for, uh, like ranger school or dapper school or, or you know, if you're doing a long field problem, with your unit, you'll carry about four of those plus water. So we're about to try it right now. Yeah. Uh, what, any, do you, what do you have, Tony? I have the, uh, I've got the brisket and you got the ribs. I got the ribs. Yep. Which one of these is better? Tony won. Yeah. yeah. The brisket, <laughs> Damn it. All right, let's do this. Right, Here we go. <laughs> Tony won. Okay. Mine is very salty. It's not as disgusting as it's I thought it was going to be. It's like um, it's like airplane food. Yeah, at least mine is. Wait. So, first question: Did you heat them, or are you eating them cold? Because they come with a heater packet. Yeah, that was a little intimidating for us because we're pussies. <laughs> like it, it said, that had gas in it, and I was like, "I'm good." So we boiled them. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Yeah, so they're definitely warm. Yeah, they're warm. Um, how many of these did you eat in your time in the army? In my life, I've eaten more than I care to remember. Uh, yeah, more than I care to remember. Can I tell you my favorite part of these meals? The, uh, the, uh, Irish cream cappuccino. <laughs> are you serious? It's like, it's like we are the, we yes. are the greatest army in the history of the world. And when we're not fighting, we drink cappuccinos. <laughs> That's right. Irish cream, no less. 
Well, I got to be honest. The uh, the whiskey we're drinking is making this not taste quite as bad as I assume it is. Yeah, I've never had that experience. No, I know, and mm-hmm. I'm and I thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll have it next time. All right. So before we get into topics, you know, one Ryan, I wanted to know what made you enlist in the army. You want to just kind of tell us what was going through your head when, yeah, when you enlisted? So, so Tony, yeah. So Tony, you and I met like a few years ago through a mutual friend. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is one of the most affluent places in the country. I went to a very nice high school. I went to a very nice private university. I went to American University in Washington, D.C. And uh, I think I was a junior in college in 2001. And, uh, 9-11 happened, I had a, I think I was having a little tough time in school, trying to, just like any young 20-year-old, trying to figure myself out, and so I knew I was going to finish school, and I was trying to decide what I was going to do, and uh, it was literally between a Christian mission and join the Army, uh, and I was lucky enough to have two buddies that I played rugby with, and uh, they had gotten out of the Army, and, and they were going to school with me, and they said, hey, we were Army Rangers, and I said, what's that? And, uh... I figured that out. Uh, I figured out what that was, and I and I figured, all right, that that seems uh, pretty hard, and I'm I'm pretty stupid, so that seems like a, a great idea for me to go enlist and go be an infantryman in 75th Range Regiment. So, but uh, I joined the army. Just to clarify, nine uh, eleven had already happened. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a post nine eleven, so I was a, I was after uh, we were we were in Afghanistan, and uh, I joined after nine eleven. Yeah. And you were, you know, I mean, well, well, go ahead. I, I don't want to interrupt you. So then, like, you know, we're at war, and now you're joining the army. Like, wh- why? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Uh, I think, you know, in high school, like any any other kid, uh, you know, our grandparents all fought in World War II, or many of our grandparents, or at least Vietnam or Korea, and 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 guys talk like guys talk, and you know, they said, oh, I'm not going to join the army, but you know, if there was ever a big war, of course I would. Um, and then you know, I think all this turmoil uh, after 9-11, should we go? Or I, Initially, we, you know, we all thought we should go, and then um, President Bush in Iraq happened, and, you know, th- there were a lot of conflicting opinions about that. Um, and, you know, and I had my own opinions about, you know, what was happening, but I thought, um, you know, who, who the hell am I to give my opinion? I don't know any better. Uh, you know, I've lived a soft life. I've lived an easy life, um, and... You know, the poor kids from Minnesota are the ones going. Uh, I have no right to speak. And I thought maybe uh, if I disagreed with it or I didn't disagree, um, if I at least went, um, I, I, it was worth it for me uh, to at least be like, yeah, you know what, I went. It was wrong or right. Um, but I, I don't know because someone told me or because of a radio program or something I read. Right. Uh, I because I experienced it, and that was really important for me. And, and just for the record, I mean, you weren't on guard duty over there. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't. I was not. Yeah, I was not. and that's the thing I think, like, I always found fascinating about Ryan is, like, this is a guy who is in college, and, you know, I mean, I'm a college dropout. I did not then say, you know, I'm not a college dropout, so. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing well in college. Let me go... Uh, uh, you know, see what's really going on over there and defend our country. I mean, that would have been the last thing in the world on my mind. Uh, and then there's human beings out there like Ryan, <laughs> who does not need to do this, but to to get further in life and to really have a grasp on, you know, what me and you, Amit, like mm-hmm. we only know from reading or from hearing, 
he went there and and has a a different perspective on it, which is why I think it's important that we have him on as a guest. And uh, absolutely, you're going to stick around, and we're going to talk some topics if that's cool. Yeah, sounds good. And, and, and I want to hear you for dinner. Yeah, and just just for the record, I mean, there's nothing more badass than an Army Ranger, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's not biased at all. That's my favorite thing about the army. It's like they'll actually all go defend each other and die for each other. But when you're not fighting and you're like, oh, are you in the Navy? They're like, fuck, fuck those pussies. <laughs> or like, what are you in the Marines? <laughs> fuck that. I'm in the army or the other way around. There's never like a no. Those guys are fucking badass. But I'm in this one. By the um, way, you haven't touched those fucking ribs. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm crushing this brisket. And you're like. <laughs> that Wait, thing does look gross. I, it looks like the McRib. Can I? Can I say it does? It is like McRib. Mm -hmm. Can I say I've eaten much worse than this? Like, like cafeteria food. At, yeah. At you know, no, it's not middle bad. school. Like, yeah. Much worse than this. Yeah, it's yeah. not bad. Yeah. I mean, I imagine eating this for a couple of years, it's bad. But yeah. right now, I'm like pleasantly surprised. My mashed potatoes are buttery. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. So, so here's the thing. So, like on deployment, like I wouldn't eat those for months in a row. Uh, because you, you're on a, you know, you come back to a base and you go to a chow hall. But when you're in the field, uh, I remember eating in a ranger school, especially because you have to eat them for like weeks on end. And that's when I kind of, you know, day number one or two, you're good. Day number nine, you're, you're, you know, thinking about your life choices that have brought you to this point in your life where you're having another business. So. <laughs> Let's uh, let's get into it. Yeah, Where are we so, going, baby? So these are topics. There's stuff going on, man. There's definitely Holy stuff going shit. on. And because um, Ryan's our guest today, I, I picked these topics, which are all basically uh, centered around his field of expertise, which is national security. Um, and so the first question, now that we're basically in the sort of twilight hours of the Obama administration, I wanted to do kind of a post-mortem on his foreign policy slash national security policy. Um, and so, you know, here we are 15 years after 9-11, um, and the Obama administration is going to hand over about seven wars or conflicts across the earth to the next president. The space of the war, right, has expanded, and there's a sort of low-grade sort of continuous war going on. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, from Ryan, from your perspective, do you think Obama's approach has been a good one, that it's sort of enhanced our national security from the moment he took office to now? Right. Uh, so I'll, I'll caveat everything I'm about to say, that uh, the, the views expressed are my own uh, and in no way representative of the U.S. Army or our government. Uh, so I'll, I'll caveat the whole thing. Uh, shout out to my DAG office. Uh, yeah. But we, we, so what I'll say is uh, on September 10th, uh, 2001, I don't think there was a single person um, on the planet that could have predicted how dynamic um, the geopolitical uh, scene has become. Um, things move uh, so incredibly quickly and we saw it uh, in Libya, especially, but in Syria and other places, things move so quickly and things change. Um, I think, I believe, because of uh, technology, that uh, you know, no one could have predicted this. Now, if talking specifically about uh, the current president, 
Um, I think given what he was handed um, and where it where it is now, um, when you take into account uh, some of the things I mentioned, uh, you know, how fast things are changing, he's done a good job. Um, and I think that the leaders uh, in our military have done the best they can um, given the fact that, you know, the world is this 110-mile-an-hour train and they're just, sometimes it feels to us uh, in the military like we're just trying to um, trying to do our best to keep up. Um, I think President Obama had very um, big plans when he came in office and I think there was a lot of things he wanted to do. And I think that the static, I think he would have been able to complete a lot, a lot more of those things. Maybe Gitmo's empty and, and it's just a, you know, a big nature preserve uh, somewhere sitting um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And I think maybe, um, you know, Afghanistan has completely stood up and on their own and Ashraf Ghani is in charge and running the show. But um, I think given uh, how fast and how, how much things have changed, I think he's, he's done well. Um, he, he's, he's done well enough. So, on the, you know, he was elected, of course, on scaling down warfare, right? So that as a nominee um, in 2008, he was effectively elected because he said he was going to de-escalate these wars, he's going to certainly end the war in Iraq and so on. Um, and essentially, he's taken a lot of flack from, that, from doing some of those things. Um, and there's been various, I mean, the, the sort of spectrum of critique has essentially been, first of all, he shouldn't have announced that he was doing that um, and that it was a sort of political game he was playing and that sort of sacrificed military strategy on the altar of politics. Um, and the other one is, you know, the whole thing about benchmarks and things like that rather than timelines. Uh, and in the end, you know, I, I'm just, and obviously this is just from an observer, like civilian observer watching this through the newspapers and so on, but it seems like the war has gotten bigger. Um, and even though certainly there's, yes, there's not, you know, full scale invasions like on the order of the Iraq war. Um, it seems like the war is expanding with no sort of temporal end or spatial end. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that there's some, some, some credo to what you said that, that agree that maybe there aren't uh, large scale invasions like we saw in Iraq or uh, in, the, in the surge in Afghanistan, but that maybe, uh, you know, our idea of war, conflict has become this low hum in the background that's ever present. And um, unfortunately, the, the people back home in the United States have become this white noise, um, which, you know, uh, you know, something about the Kardashians and something will catch our opinion and sort of eclipse the fact that, you know, there definitely still are thousands of troops deployed forward um, to Asia and uh, Europe. Um, but I think that the nature, um, of the conflicts have changed, you know, historically, uh, so the army has this thing, um, called date scenario, uh, and it, it's basically direct action, uh, uh, you know, force on force. So like, um, you know, China versus the U S and that's the date scenario. And that's what we had, uh, historically, uh, and that's from the cold war. I mean, that's what we always trained for. Uh, we were going to go fight the Russians or the Chinese somewhere. And the reality of it has, although those countries maybe are still a threat, that 
uh, due to economics, they may or may not ever happen. But what will happen is this uh, idea of uh, insurgency in these smaller groups of people and really uh, ideologies, though not necessarily nation states, um, even though ISIS uh, would like to claim themselves as a nation state, but really it's these small pockets of ideology um, that we fight. Um, and that fight leads us to not deploying maybe uh, brigades or divisions of soldiers, but will lead us to deploy small groups of soldiers, whether that's intelligence, electronic warfare, special operations, um, and, and we'll deploy them forward to sort of, um, wow. instead of using a, uh, a hammer, we're using a, we're, we're doing our best to sort of use a scalpel um, and, and cut this stuff out. But that's really, um, you know, that's really the, the military end. I mean, w- when you look at it, it's really, uh, that's really the symptom, right? Uh, so bigger picture, um, it, what is the disease? Like, why is this happening? You know, why do we see so many groups, whether it's Boko Haram, ISIS, or the Taliban, why do we see so many of these groups springing up? Um, and, and, and what is that? And that's the bigger question. I think it's the harder question to answer. And there are a lot of people out there uh, in the military, in the DOD, in the government that are looking at this. But, you know, it, it, it's the harder, I think it's the harder question to answer. So very often, um, in the short term, we're looking to the military to answer, um, answer and solve some of those problems. And again, that may be a symptom rather than, you know, the greater the disease of, well, you know, what's the bigger issue? Why are these people doing these things? from what I'm getting from what you're saying is that there's all sorts of deep origins to these insurgencies and things like that. And essentially there's a military solution that's been sort of foisted. It's kind of foisted on the military uh, to sort of solve it. Um, I have a, like a, I don't know. I just thought of this question is that in the military, in the army, from what you can speak of, um, how far is the historical perspective, right? That you were talking about sort of in terms of short term and things like that, in terms of solving problems, I'm wondering how far back do army people look, for example, I know you guys have all those lessons learned and things like that from various engagements. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, so uh, the army, the army. I think since 9-11 has done, uh, and historically we've done a pretty good job of like record keeping, um, uh, but they say that the adage is you're always fighting the last war, um, and which happens sometimes, and we, we end ourselves kicking our own butt a little bit. Uh, but we, we've done a lot of better, we've done a much better job since 9-11 um, at taking uh, a more holistic approach to how we're solving the problem. And again, you know, the, they use the Army, the, our politicians, our government use the Army as this, or the Army of the Marines, as the military in general, as this Swiss Army knife to solve a lot of the problems. But the military has, uh, as been looking back, and we do have data, and we've, we've done a better job about keeping records and, and like, okay, well, what worked then and what worked now? Um, uh, you know, the coin strategy, um, which worked in Afghanistan, I mean, so I talked earlier about the, the date scenario, uh, you know, the force on force. So the coin, the idea of counterinsurgency, is really centuries old. Uh, when you go back, uh, you know, centuries back to the Chinese, um, but more recently in our U.S. history, you can go back to the Vietnam War, where it was, uh, we were aiding the South Vietnamese fighting the NVA, 
but what turned out, you know, we were kind of fighting the NBA and the Viet Cong, and it was really an insurgency. Um, so, you know, you skip forward, uh, we have a few smaller conflicts in Panama, Grenada, uh, the first Iraq war where it was more, you know, force on force. And then I think this thing happened, September 11th happened, we went to Afghanistan, and, and then, you know, eventually Iraq, and very quickly we realized uh, that it wasn't the same force on force that we had been uh, fighting or preparing to, that it was a, a counterinsurgency, and that's when the wheels started to turn, and people like General Petraeus started to look at this and be like, all right, well, what, I mean, what can we do as Army soldiers? Now, there's things that hamper us a little bit in that uh, Army officers and soldiers and units in general, they don't stay together for an extended period of time. There's always people coming in and out of the organization. And even when you deploy forward into theater, you're only there, you know, the, the units that were there the longest, I think, was 18 months. When you look at historically, um, when nations fought other nations or you know, counterinsurgency or otherwise, they would stay uh, in continuum or, or until the war um, ended. Uh, and, and that's not the case here. So you're having to solve these problems and, you know, you'll get a timetable of 12 months. You know, those individual commanders um, that have their areas of responsibility, you know, they have their end state for their 12 months. And that, unfortunately, sometimes you're not positively incentivizing them to solve the bigger picture. You know, you're basically saying, like, look, get your soldiers home safe and, you know, you've got 12 months to do X, which doesn't... You know, if you have a problem that, you know, may take a decade-long fix that includes, hey, re- reconstructing the economy and helping rebuild the society, we want to make sure women have more rights, um, uh, you know, we want better health care for the people, and, oh, by the way, you have these countries next door, which you're not allowed to go into, but they're also going to they have a say in the fight as well. So I think the timetable that, you know, you give some of the commanders goes against them. But the bigger picture, I think the generals um, in Washington, um, I, I think they do see the bigger picture. And for a lot of them, they've been doing this in their entire lives now. You think of, uh, you know, so w- with 2016, we've been fighting the war, uh, you know, the, the war, the global war on terrorism for 15 years. Now the people that are starting to become colonels in the Army have been doing this since the day one in the Army. So they weren't people that came in under the office of the Cold War, and there are people that have grown up with nothing but this idea of insurgency. Um, so we're getting better at it. Uh, we're, we're getting better at it. I, I don't know. Um, have, have we Obviously, we don't have an answer just yet. And, you know, in the same breath, the problem keeps changing. So, you know, uh, you know the first couple of years we have Afghanistan, and how do we solve that? And then uh, now, you know, ISIS, and now ISIS is, you know, they have these uh, these cells that are all over, and now you have to, well, how do we get uh, the other alphabet agencies in our government involved, and how do we all work together? The problem is very, very dynamic, and it involves, uh, you know, more, you know, the Army or the military is used, but the, the problem, unfortunately, is, is bigger than that. Okay. So, yeah. Ryan, thank you. Hold that thought, because you just raised and kind of got into our next topic. But let's, Which let's, is, my. I know how to solve this. Me and Trump. <laughs> okay, okay. Me and Donald Trump have the answers to ISIS. <laughs> let's, let's have a drink, Paul. We're going we're gonna to grab a quick drink. Yeah, sounds good. 
Ryan, you uh, teed us up very nicely for the next topic. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Ahmed, it's, it's cool to be on the phone with you. I get to listen to you every week on the podcast. Oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, it's cool to be on the phone with you. Absolutely. So. We've, been, we've been talking about getting you on forever. Uh, Tony's been, as soon as he described your background, I was like, we got to get him on. So thanks for doing it. Uh, I tried the rib. It's definitely not as good. The brisket's much better. You're do- you're totally right on that. Yeah. What? Is, where does your like dessert situation for the brisket one? Uh, so, the brisket one. I got the brisket. I got a. Uh, I think I got an oatmeal cookie. I got, okay. I got PB and J. All right. Which is so kind of like a whole other meal. So the thing is, like guys, you do go to ranger school with these, and guys will like trade parts of their meal, and, <laughs> and the wins. When you get one of these like oatmeal cookies, there's something called a dairy shake, which is you know basically some kind of powdered strawberry milkshake. But if you can trade some of your stuff for a dairy shake. Uh, you put a little bit of water in it and you use it as an icing, and it's like the best you've ever had in your whole life. <laughs> oh my god! Well, yeah, I'm 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 not trading almond on shit. We're just drinking whiskey to <laughs> drink this all away. Um, I actually, I, I knew we were eating these tonight, so I looked up the background of these, and uh, it's a Muslim doctor that invented these in the 1960s for the U.S. military. Um, yeah. I know that. Yeah. 1963, they started it. In 1968, in Vietnam, General Westmoreland tried the first one. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, uh, I wonder what the radical ones taste like. <laughs> They're probably crazy. Right, right. You know what I was thinking? When you were talking about how you were at American University, you didn't know what you wanted to do, and then you went into the Army. If I was your roommate at American University, you probably could have talked me into doing this with you. <laughs> I have two questions. One is, did, you know me. Did I have any shot at becoming a Ranger? And if, for, by the grace of God, I did it, would you have been at risk having to protect me the whole time? So I will tell you, I am in no way... Uh, shape or form uh, special. Uh, I just, like, doing that stuff, it's always, like, people say, people say to me, like, oh, I can't do it. And I'm like, you'll be surprised what you can do when, when you have to do it. So uh, all I had to do is be, like, dumb enough to sign the paperwork and then <laughs> just, like, not quit. And right. then eventually I had, like, people around me that, like, kind of got me straight. But, I mean, uh yeah, I mean, all you got to do is just, like, not quit. Uh, I think the hardest part was just, like, signing the paperwork and being like, all right, I'm going to go and probably go to war. So, all right, well, here you go. Yeah, so, like, at what point did you shit yourself? Uh, honestly, I was always probably a little more scared of my team leaders uh, and my squad leaders because they were scary dudes. Uh, growing up Ranger Regiment, uh, like, I think growing up, like, being a junior enlisted soldier in the army, uh, like, uh, you know, you have these guys that they're just like intimidating guys and they are for a reason because, you know, they want you to follow the orders like they're the word of God. Uh, but I was probably a little more honestly like scared, uh, in some of the training situations, uh, and in combat, I think it was never, I was always just did what I was told. And then eventually I became a team leader and I followed my squad leader's old orders, but, uh, you know, you, you do it and you do it often enough and it becomes like normalized. So you're like, okay, all right, well, this isn't that bad. Let's just keep on going. And, you know, th- there's other things that occupy your mind. And I-, I was definitely probably more like physically afraid. I was really, I still have nightmares about some of the guys that, uh, <laughs> trained. 
but but not not war itself, just the guys. <laughs> I bumped into people that like we we, we both set time at seventy fifth. I swear to God, I'm in a parking lot in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm walking out of the gym. Uh, this was like before I had gone to officer candidate school, and I'm just like fucking around on my phone. I had a sticker, the seventy fifth Ranger, a sticker in the back of my car. Kid walks by my car. He looks at me. I look at him. He goes. You were in seventy fifth Range Regiment. I go, yeah. And he goes, when were you in? And I told him. And he goes, uh, I was like, okay. And we start bullshitting. Two minutes in the conversation, I go, when did you go to RIP? RIP is called, but they don't have it anymore. They changed the name, but Ranger Indoctrination Program. It's you go to basic training, airborne school, and then you go to this two week trial, three week tryout to get in a Range Regiment, and it's horrible. I mean, it is horrible. I mean, it's just the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I've done in my life. And you have instructors, and so I looked at them. And I go, who are your instructors? And 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 he said, he said names of these two guys. And I looked at him and I was like, yes. And I was like, dude, I still have nightmares about those guys. And he was like, yeah, I do too. And it was like, far <laughs> separated from the war, and we're not telling war stories. We're being like, remember those other Literally made us do push-ups, so we threw up in the woods, and that's what we wanted to talk about. Well, I will say this: you both made it back alive. Right. So I guess those guys are doing something good. Yeah, they did something right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, where are we going? Okay, so um, the theme has already been brought up. So the, the, the what I want to raise next is that we talked a little bit about the Obama administration. I want to talk about what I, who I think is the likely president, which is Hillary Clinton, um, and her approach to national, uh, national security. You just jinxed us, by the way. Why? You just said the likely. Candidate. I said likely. I said I what what I think is the likely. Hey uh, man, president. Okay. Great. All right. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I think it'll happen. Anyway, um, and in particular, her. You know, it's been reported that she's got a pretty close relationship with very high ranking retired uh, army officers, um, Jack Keane, Stanley McChrystal, and Petraeus, who's already come up, and. What they all have in common is that they are proponents of the military doctrine of counterinsurgency, um, with Petraeus shepherding the publication of the whole um, FM 324 in 2006 and so on, just sort of big sort of cheerleaders of this approach. The first thing that I wanted to ask is, and you sort of mentioned that the Army and the Marine Corps has become a little more cognizant of their own military history and uh, some of the lessons to be drawn from that. Um, you mentioned Vietnam, you can go back to, you know, Korea, you can go back really to the Philippines and so on. Um, what, and and you mentioned this term, which I've heard a lot, which is that the army always sort of sees itself as fighting um, the last war, even, even when it's sort of attempting to do the sort of cutting edge of new doctrine and so on. Um, but the, the question that I want to raise is that a lot of the counterinsurgency doctrine is actually dependent on, uh, I think, a kind of mechanical understanding of French military history. And it's all really derived from French doctrine from Algeria and Indochina that failed. Um, and they were there for 20 years. And I mean, they were there, they were in, in Algeria for a long time. Um, Indochina, a little bit less, but they, they, they had sort of decades long attempts at this and they still failed. And but did I, they have drones? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> fine. They don't have drones. No. And cell phones. But, yeah. No, I mean, they, they, they had, I mean, they had, 
you know, way more technological advantage than their insurgents have. Let's put it that way, right? Like the the Algerian insurgents were fighting with Ottoman rifles. You know, that's yeah. that's how they started their not insurgents. a bad rifle, right? But you know, I yeah, right. You know, that's what that's what they started in 1954. Um, so my question is like, so I understand that this approach that yes, there's an insurgency going on. What I and I'm just you know full disclosure here. I'm trained in French history, so and this is kind of what I've studied. Um, it, just, it just seems like the bat, the sort of the wrong example to graft on contemporary war fighting, uh, if only for the fact that it hasn't worked. Uh. So I mean, so anything, so anything, you got to start. You have to start somewhere. Um, so the counterinsurgency, and, and you reference the FM, um, and they just updated it in 2014. Right. Um, from the original one, it crafted. I mean, we're, we're the military, so we always have to have a plan, right? There's always some guys in some room somewhere coming up from with with a plan for everything. So, uh, so you have to come up with some sort of framework or architecture to start with. Um, you know, the Army has, or the U.S. Army has always, uh, historically, we've stole from people. Um, so whether it's von Klopfitz in Germany or French, um, you know, we've just kind of picked and chose uh, what we wanted and, and we'll take it and use it. So it's, as far as our own counterinsurgency um framework and what we're going to do, it's basically, I, I think in my opinion, it's a square peg that we're going to, we're going to shape and mold to fit whatever kind of hole it fits, right? So the counterinsurgency is dependent not so much on following doctrinally what it says, but upon the leaders being uh, adaptable to be able to be able to jam that square peg into that triangle hole, whether um, it's in Syria, Afghanistan, or North Africa. Um, I, I also will caveat it by saying, you know, the military solution, I mentioned this earlier, it's really only, and that's because of the world that we're living in right now, is really only going to be, you're only always going to get about a halfway solution, right? So the best you can hope for with the military, uh, and, and the way it kind of functions now is be like, all right, well, we're going to get it, so hopefully... They can't attack us on military uh, on U.S. soil, um, but it really goes back to nation building, and then it goes back into deeper things um, that are really comes down to have and have not. So the rest of the world looks at you know Western Europe and the United States and and maybe a little bit to China and Japan, and then you know they look at their own station. Um, and it's really the disparity between what they have and what we have. I mean, it, it, it's miles apart, and you can see that in every day, these people risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean Ocean or people picking up with, with nothing and, and, and crossing miles, um, whether it's people moving from South America all the way across the continent, across Central America to get to America, or people moving from, you know, middle of nowhere Asia get to Western Europe. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they may look at the military and be like, you, you failed. But really, I, I think our military has done the best job they can, given the problems that they're handed. If you told the U.S. Army tomorrow, hey, we're going to war against China, we'd be okay. We can defeat all their tanks and their planes and their submarines. 
But when you turn around and say, well, you have to defeat these guys, they, they don't have much weapons capability, but you're also going to have to change their society. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of setting them up for failure, I think, right. you know? Yeah, I mean, I think what you described is right. I mean, that it my, sounds frustrating. My, well, no, I mean, my only critique. So I had um, a long conversation with. Um, see, I guess he's a lieutenant colonel, retired lieutenant colonel uh, John Noggle, um, who wrote uh, an influential book called um, "Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife." Um, and yeah, I've heard of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote a couple. Great of Great title. He, he wrote, by he the wrote way. a. He wrote a couple. It, it it comes from Lawrence of Arabia and his sort of um, insurgency that he led. Um, but uh, he wrote a couple of the chapters in the FM, and he, and I mean, granted, he's a, a probably a bit more doctrinaire because this is kind of his intellectual baby um, than than most. This global social question that you described. You know, here's the thing. Here, I mean, this is this is where I, there, I have this sort of critique is that you described a sort of if coin is kind of a square that will be modified to fit into whatever hole that you know uh, appears. The other side of it is that when you have a very large military, you have a large hammer, and then everything starts to look like a nail, right? And so that the the should it be the case that these global social questions are addressed with the military? Well, how else would you do it? I mean, I mean, there's there's other ways. I mean, you know, after the Nazis destroyed Europe, we didn't we had we, we had the Marshall Plan. Right? Yeah, but you we know, fucked so, them up. But we we whipped their ass, and then right, we did that. Right, so right, you, right. But there was an ass whooping that came before. Absolutely, talking. Absolutely, but that took a few years and we're now 15 years. My, my only question is, is that if this is the case that the attempt to remodel the world kind of in our image um, is the strategy of the United States, um, isn't that a recipe for resistance and just more insurgency and counterinsurgency and then you just get this relentless dialectic? I mean, is it an attempt to remodel the world in our image, or is there, do we have a minimum standard, and, you know, should we say, you know, as, as people, as humans, the humanity of it, should we say, well, you know, I, I think women should have equal rights. Uh, you know, is that is that our American image, or is that should that be a standard for humanity? Well, I think, I mean, I think, I mean, I would think so, but who am I? I mean, I mean, the, 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 the only sort of, I guess the question is that, you know, the Saudis don't have that. We're not going to be invading them anytime soon uh, or well, that, droning that's another them. Bullet. Right, right, you know, so like, so, so th there's, there's, yeah, but there's certain, there's saying. certain people that because of their humanitarian record and so on, we sort of lift them up as bad guys that then sort of come to require or perhaps even deserve American military correction. Um, Whereas there's a host of other quote unquote would be bad guys who are our friends and who also have terrible human rights records that we kind of just sort of look aside because they serve our interests. So it, it just seems kind of like a little bit of both sides of the mouth. No, I mean, look at, I mean, look at China. I mean, their humanitarian record isn't exactly sterling, mm -hmm. but we're not going to stop trading the, the Chinese. Right. Uh, yeah, but we're, you know, we're not going to stop doing business with them. 
anytime soon, right? So I yeah, I do agree. Um, you know, but in the same time, the same it really comes down to maybe short term versus long term, right? So short term, uh, you know, you're like, all right, we gotta try to make sure that you know uh, ISIS doesn't send terrorists on planes to the United States to you know blow something up. Uh, but then you're balancing that with like, all right, well, ten or twenty years from now, like, you know, if you know we're blowing up, uh, you know, you know we're doing our best, maybe with precision guided munitions and 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 smaller unit tactics. But you know, what is it going to look like twenty years from now uh, when the children of those people grow up? And you know, what is that? So, it, you know, it's, you're trying to balance short term and long term, um, and really, you know, tying back to the military. I mean, your commanders are going to say yes. Your military commanders are going to say yes every single time. Um, it's not their decision to make, uh, you know, about, you know, the, the Army and the military and the Marines and the Air Force are looking down the road. But, you know, when you give them a problem set, they're not looking 30 years down the road. They're, you know, solving your problem as best they can in the now. Right. Um, so, right. Yeah, I mean, that question is up for... You know, and in the same breath, like, you know, if you, if you have politicians, and I, I'm not looking even at the office of the president, but our Congress and our senators that are on this either three- or four-year election cycle, uh, you know, that 20-year question, maybe, you know, they don't think that their voter base back in their home state gives two licks about, but what their voter base may care about is the fact that, hey, nothing got blown up in Missouri or Kansas or Minnesota while this guy was senator because he had a strong, uh, you know, strong support of the military. And so they see that as a one-to-one correlation. Well, he supported the military, so we didn't see anything, even though, you know, the real answer is much deeper. Well, the reason we haven't seen an attack or a significant attack um, is maybe there's other reasons to that. Right. 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 It's insane. Yeah. So... It's yeah, it's how frustrating is it that like these guys are, you know, like like Ryan clearly has a deeper intellect about all of this than most politicians. But their job when you're in the military, your job is to kill bad guys. Right. And let these idiot politicians what he you know, and, and he's right. It's like these are people who are influenced by being voted in. So if you live in a stupid state with stupid people. Well, I need to cater to stupid people who want to ban Muslims, who want to... I mean, look at Donald Trump and his rhetoric right now. So we have people over there defending our country um, that have a deeper intellect that their job is just kill bad guys because that makes some people feel good. Where the larger problem that we're discussing is so above... (laughs) I I would actually say 70%. Let me know if you disagree. Ryan, you don't have to, but I'm a kid. 70% of the United States population, it's above them. They don't think about 20, well, 30 years from now. Well, they think yeah, about I mean, now. I don't think it's... I wouldn't use that language. I wouldn't say above them, but they're just... Well, I would. They're stupid. It's above them. I'm not a school teacher, and I'm not in the army. I'm a TV producer. They're stupid. I'm diplomatic by nature, right? So, so I'm just saying that... They're just not informed about it. So if they were informed about it, and and I think it wouldn't be above them, they would have probably considered things to say. Um, but they're yeah, just but not really informed about it. How easy is it to That's, inform yourself nowadays? Well, it's not it's, that it's easy. It's never been that I'm it. I inform myself, and I'm an idiot. Well, listen, 70% of the population is struggling to make ends meet. So you know, informing themselves on 
you know, geopolitics of the hotspots of the world is probably I mean, there's been you know, poor people forever that can still children. read a damn book. You can still read. It's not like you need to okay. go do something to read. It's okay. not that hard. Okay. You can be dumb yeah. and read. So I think what you see in America, especially with this election and uh, some of the people with who they're supporting, um, I think it's a manifestation of fear uh, in a lot of ways. I mean. I don't think that the world is any crazier um, than, than it's necessarily ever been. Like, I don't think it's that much crazier right now than it was, you know, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, I mean, there's no, uh, we, there's no Nazi Third Reich, you know what I mean? Uh, but I think that the news media, we know about it the second it happened. Right. Um, and I think that people see this in the TV and... Uh, I think it, it engenders fear in them. And I think that there's also this anxiety. So we talk about our own American society. There was an article written uh, by a writer uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, and he's from New York. And, and he talks about how many Americans, uh, if they had an emergency, would they have $400 um, to be able to go out and, you know, take care of whatever emergency and he admits, he's like, you know, I'm a successful writer, and I myself, if I had an emergency that was like, you know, whatever, $800, I'd have to borrow the money. So that financial insecurity, tied with, you know, all these all these things, you know, healthcare, not everyone has healthcare in America. And so all this insecurity is being a manifest itself. Um, you, you know, we want to look for, not necessarily, it, it's harder to look at, like, deeper answers, well, why are these things happening, and you know, why, why don't I have money in my savings account? And why am I, even though I have a good job, like, why am I worried about health care? Um, and instead they manifest itself into, well, it's got to be someone's fault. So look around, and, and then now yeah. we're starting to see some of the xenophobia that we see, well, it's Muslim, or it's, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and, and it's this manifestation of fear, and that, that goes back to, you know, what we were talking about, you know, about this, this most recent election. So Preach. Yeah, we can't even disagree. <laughs> like, this is the most agreeing vibe. We're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So we, we make for awful radio. Congratulations. <laughs> I know. It's like uh, the agree station. All right, let's drink to Three that. Three idiots agreeing on something. Let's have a drink. This is bullshit. It's a fucking kumbaya bullshit. What are we on, our third topic? We're on our last topic. We're on our last topic. Man. kind of sad. Like, we just do this all... For well, I, here's, yeah, you know, I got a sad. thing in my head. If, if yeah. Ryan doesn't get fired after this, <laughs> I'm thinking we should, like, you know, every three or four podcasts, we should have, like, a Ryan Friday or something oh where he God. comes on. I mean, the perspective is... It's great. Like, no offense, Ahmed. I mean, you're a pussy and I'm a pussy. And yeah. I mean, come on. I have no pretense. He's been there. I have no pretense. He's seen it. Yes. He's seen it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Do you need to have like? Do you need to have someone like super conservative on? I know uh, we're not we're there yet. We're trying. We're training on it. No, we can find it. We're training. I'm not ready. Ryan, you and me, we got the exact opposite approaches to life. I see something in, in the theater, and I'm like, that looks easy. Why am I not doing it? You see something, and you're like, that looks hard. I need to try that. I I've been trying to find a job where I can lie down and make a lot of money. Yeah, I know. That's why you're smarter than me, Tony. No, I don't know that I'm smarter. I'm fatter than you. <laughs> that we know. <laughs> All right, third topic. Okay. Here we go. Third topic. All right. Here we go. So 
Um, and this is this is actually this just came to me this afternoon, um, and it's interesting because of what we talked about earlier. But so retired uh, Army General Martin Dempsey, the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, put out a an op-ed today um, in Defense One. And I'm just going to read a couple quotations here. Um, and this was in response to the political conventions of the last two weeks. Um, and here's the quote I'm quoting here. More than an individual reputation, retired generals and admirals enjoy a collective reputation earned by having been part of a profession. It is therefore nearly impossible for them to speak exclusively for themselves when speaking publicly. Their opinion is valued chiefly because it is assumed they speak with the authority for those who have served in uniform. Uh, ellipse, uh, this is where the freedom of speech and argument often invoked in this debate about the role of retired senior military officers in election campaigns fails. Unquestionably, retired admirals and generals are free to speak to those seeking elected office, but they should speak privately, where it will not be interpreted that they are speaking for us all. General, the military, uh, the, the Marine general, uh, Allen, Allen, um, spoke at length, um, in, uh, at the democratic one. Right. And so Dempsey is basically responding to basically politicians trotting out men in uniform, uh, to peddle their ideologies and their political platforms and so on. And he's kind of throwing down the gauntlet here and saying that this is just should not be done. Um, the rest, you know, it makes this kind of interesting argument about the sort of apolitical nature of the military and stuff like that. And we can sort of talk about that. But I was, I was just wondering, what do you think of that argument that retired senior military, and he's really talking about um, generals and admirals here. So you're in the clear, by the way, until, until you get promoted. Um, yeah. um, by about nine ranks. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, but um, He's saying that they should not be speaking, right? They should really not be speaking, that they should definitely be giving advice in private, but public speech, it's kind of like a Kantian argument, right? That you can, you're allowed to do it, but if you're wearing the uniform, you represent something else, uh, and therefore your speech should be circumscribed. What do you think about that? So, uh, I, yeah, he was speaking in reference to General Allen's speech, uh, which was pretty powerful at the TNC, um, and General Dempsey himself has a has a you know, an incredible background that served this country, you know, for well over 20 years proudly. Um, but, you know, the history, especially the American history, and really for most nations, the history between politics and military leaders is, is, is tied. And this country has had some actually really great, uh, you know, military uh, political leaders. I mean, General Eisenhower was, right. a, was a great president. And even if you look... Now, uh, at, at, you know, Senator McCain, uh, you know, his service to the country, uh, unfortunately, there's not as many in Congress or in Senate now as we'd like. But uh, I think, number one, uh, when they're retired, uh, so they, they do have the right. So there's nothing uh, constitutionally or there's no, like, bylaw or that says, like, hey, you can't collect your pension anymore. Right. If you don't represent, uh, you know, or if you uh, advocate for any leader, um, it, it's General Dempsey's opinion that because of, you know, that their their the role they took in the military, that they can sway people one way or the other. Uh, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, publicly, if they have an opinion and they have, and the opinion is, for many of these guys, is based in, like, a lot of really good experience and a lot of good knowledge. Uh, and, you know, it's not like they're a bunch of dum-dums coming out of the woodwork being like, hey, I think you should over this guy. Well, you know, it's based on their life experience. So if they, and, and this is what General Allen's opinion was that, like, uh, you know, usually I, I, I I'm, I'm, you know, paraphrasing for him, but General Allen basically said, usually I stay out of this stuff. He's like, I don't get involved in politics, but I felt so strongly about this current election and the two candidates that I felt necessary to speak, and that's his right. And, and if he wants to do that, um, he should do that. I don't think that they're necessarily, um, you know, disparaging or putting any of our military leaders at a disadvantage um, because they're coming out to speak. I don't think that they're... I'm sure there are some people, but most people don't think because General Allen felt one way that that's how everyone in the military officer enlisted or otherwise feels. I think everyone kind of understands why everyone has their own opinion about, you know, who should be the president. But with, without a shadow of a doubt, the people that are still on active duty... Um, They'll follow the, off, uh, the orders of the office of the president of the United States um, without question, and, and you know, unless they're legal, immoral, or ethical, unethical, they'll follow orders. So, Ryan, to wrap this all up, um, what's your view on the future of the world of America? I think I think you, you hit the nail on the uh, you hit that you hit that nail on the head, which is like people are afraid. People do think the world's burning, even though. You do not think it is. Uh, and and by the way, I had this conversation with a bunch of friends like about a week ago, and, and they were all like, well, and I go, dudes, we're fine. Like, we're going to be fine. Don't get into this shit. Don't let, don't get, don't get dragged into this panic. We are actually fine. Nothing's different. I, I literally said verbatim what you said. Um, what would, what's your view as somebody who has been there, met the people that we're fighting against, that we're rescuing, uh, What's your view on the outlook of this whole situation, regardless of who wins or doesn't win for president? Just as a, as a guy who's seen it, what's your state of mind? Uh, I think the world is changing. Uh, I think the world will continue to change, but we'll be all right. Uh, I mean, the world's not going to stop spinning. Uh, and once you just take a, take a minute and exhale a little bit and then uh, clear your head, uh, you realize, uh, you know, there's going to be bumps in the roads and, uh, but we'll, we'll figure it out. There's a, there's a ton of smart people out there um, that want to, you know, solve problems and right wrongs and fix things that are broken, and that that's awesome. And but, you know, unfortunately, those don't get put on the news all the time. But but there's a lot of people out there that uh, that you know want to want to. It's, it's humanity, man. We don't we don't have any uh, claws or uh, we don't have any big teeth, right? But how do we uh, how do we climb out of the cave? Um, uh, and it, it's because humanity because we, we've taken care of each other right. uh, and, and I think we'll continue to do so uh, just uh, you know little by little day by day and let me ask you yeah. a question are, are we do can we are we still the toughest military in the world are we afraid of anybody uh, yeah we're afraid that's why we keep training but we are that we are the greatest uh, military in the world I love that that makes me feel good all right, so check it, Brian. You, you, as you know, I tell you this all the time, you are a fucking hero. 
I love talking to you. I could talk to you for five hours. And I'm sure whoever's listening could listen to this for five hours. But for the integrity of our shitty show, we're going to keep it at the hour. And uh, I would, we would love to have you back on. We, I think I speak for all of us here. We thank you for your service. The food you had to eat is disastrous. We haven't even finished it. We're going to actually go. We're going we're gonna to order pizza after this. Uh, and look, dude, you are, uh, you know, I value our friendship, and I think you're an amazing human being, and I hope that uh, your career takes you places where one day where uh, Amit and I are debating your policy. Well, I got well, well, to get there first. We'll see. You'll get there. This, this is No Politics at the Dinner Table, uh, produced by G. Baderoy. You want to thank Ryan for coming on. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Shout out to all of our armed forces uh, men and women who watch it, who listen to our show. Dude, I do it all the time. <laughs> you do I'm it. I'm a TV it's, producer. It's Give me a break. It's unbelievable, actually. Yeah. Uh, all of our, because that's where my mind is. There's like, no, I have people to watch. I just want to remind you, there's <laughs> no cameras here. <laughs> I got to get people to watch. I want to thank all of our armed force services who uh, who listen to us and uh, agree with me and not Amit. Um, you guys are more valued than everyone else. And uh, we're gonna drink these uh, delicious cappuccinos from the army. That's right. <laughs> and uh, Irish cream. Ryan, man, we love you, bro. Come back on soon. All right, I'll uh, I'll, I'll leave you tomorrow. We'll catch up. You're the man. Thanks, Ryan. All right.